Jesus touches death, so death won't touch us. And when Jesus touches death, He doesn't just stroke it. He doesn't just lay His hand. He seizes it. He grabs hold of death and He holds it. Because you know what? Death couldn't hold Him. God is asking him to believe the seemingly impossible. God is asking Abraham to look two realities in the face. One reality you see, that's his wrinkled hands, his bent over body, his aching knees. And the other reality is God said it. Which will you believe, Abraham? That's what Scripture calls genuine saving faith. And that's what Jairus is faced with. Here. So what does Jairus do? Let's find out. They laughed at him, and he put, but he put them all outside. He, there is Jesus. He put them all outside. So their skepticism earns them a trip out the door. He puts all of them outside. Their disbelief, their mocking, means that they will not witness the most extraordinary miracle that Jesus has performed to date. Up to this point, This will be the most extraordinary miracle that Jesus has ever performed. They were in the same house. They were right beside the room in which Jesus will perform the greatest miracle He has yet done. And they could have been there, but their skepticism caused them to get kicked out. There will be no miracles for the scornful throng because Jesus' greatest works are not for the eyes of unfaith to behold. Jesus' greatest works are for the eyes of faith to behold. We'll see this very plainly in the next chapter, Mark chapter 6. So Jesus puts them out. But wait a minute. Why does Jesus put them out? They're laughing at Jesus. What, What would serve them better than for them to have to eat their words or to eat their laughter? What would serve them better than for them with their very own eyes to see this girl get up? I mean, wouldn't that just be a fitting end to all of this? Wouldn't that put an end to their laughing and their skepticism? After all, isn't Jesus here to start a movement? Isn't Jesus here to start a church? Isn't Jesus here to to call people to believe in Him? Why wouldn't He just let them witness the miracle as well? And here is one of the most important points for us to see, and it is this. Mighty works by God will never change anyone's mind about Him. Never. Mighty works that God performs will never change anyone's mind. If you in your mind and in your heart disbelieve, no mighty work will ever change that. God's mighty works are done for validating His words, validating who He is. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 2. God did these mighty works through Jesus to validate who He was and to validate His words. And so if you disbelieve His words, it doesn't matter how many mighty works you see. Jesus just said the girl is not dead. She's sleeping. They laughed. They didn't believe Him. Out they go. Why? Because even if you see her rise from the dead, that's not going to change your mind. There's no word that illustrates this more plainly than this parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. We all know the parable. It's the parable of Lazarus and another rich man, here known as just the rich man. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? 
And remember how that parable goes? There's this man, Lazarus, and in life he receives all bad things. And there's a rich man who in life he receives all good things. And then just like Jairus' daughter, death comes to them both. And death is the great reversal. And so the rich man who received all good things finds himself in torment. Lazarus, in the poetic metaphorical language of the parable, is found in the bosom of Abraham. And then there's this interchange between the two. The rich man asks for mercy. Is there no reprieve? Is there no relief from this torment? No, there's not. Well, at least send somebody to tell my brothers about this place so they don't have to come here. And do you remember in the parable how Jesus answered that? They have Moses and the prophets. But if they refuse to believe them, neither will they be convinced even if someone were to return from the dead. You know what? Someone's about to return from the dead. And either we believe what Jesus said or we don't. He said, if they refuse to believe the words of Moses and the prophets, let me put this another way. You've got Bibles. If you refuse to believe those, then it doesn't matter even if someone comes back from the dead, you're not going to have your mind changed. Because mighty works from God changes no one's mind. They validate faith or they disprove it. But they never change anyone's mind. It's completely upside down to think that if these laughing scoffers had witnessed the miracle, they would have said, oh, we were wrong about you. You really are the Son of God. The soil in the heart is either good or it's thorny, shallow, or hard. And so we either believe Jesus' words about this or we don't. Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't be convinced. And so he took the child's father, he puts them out, he takes the child's father and mother and those who were with him, meaning Peter, James, and John, And he went in where the child was, verse 41, taking her by the hand. Now in your mind, we should probably not picture Jesus walking up to the girl and sort of gently taking her hand. Instead, the word that Mark uses here is this word is most often translated seize. We see the same word, Herod seized John the Baptist. Or we see the same word in the parable of the unforgiving servant who seized the man who owed him money. But we see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 11, what I think is a really close contextual interpretation of this word. Look at Matthew 12, verse 11. He said to them, which of you has who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not, here's the word, take hold of it and lift it out. That's the word. Take hold of it. So Jesus doesn't sort of gently take her hand. You know, if I, if I might be uh, politically incorrect here, you know the difference between a woman's handshake and a man's handshake. You know, sort of when a woman gives her hand and then a man clasps hands. That's the difference here. So Jesus comes up and He doesn't just gently pick up her hand. He clasps her hand firmly. Jesus touches death so death won't touch us. And when Jesus touches death, He doesn't just stroke it. He doesn't just lay His hand. He seizes it. He grabs hold of death and He holds it. Because you know what? Death couldn't hold Him. I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus seized death, and Jesus held it so death wouldn't hold us. So taking her by the hand, He said to her, 
Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Notice just the tenderness, the care and the tenderness right beside the power, the authority. Jesus just put the the scoffers outside. Get out. Jesus just arrested the crowd. No further. Jesus is about to restore a dead corpse to life. But yet right beside that is the most tender. Talitha kum. Let's think about these words. Talitha kum. Now, I know if you're reading in the English Standard as I am, or the King James, you have Talitha kumi. And uh, that is a variant read, a variant spelling of the Aramaic. Uh, more tested, better manuscripts will give us a different spelling that is Talitha kum. So we'll, go, we'll just go with that. I don't want to say any more about that. We'll just go with that. Talitha kum. Let's think about these words. Talitha kum. In the English, the, the best transliteration would be Talitha, T-A-L-I-T-H-A, kum, K-O-U-M. Talitha kum in the Aramaic. You know, this shows us something that is unique to Mark and something that is precious in Mark's gospel. And that is that Mark is the only one who gives us these Aramaic words because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Aramaic, you may know, Aramaic was a, a, I guess you could think of it as a perversion of the Hebrew language. It came about as the Hebrew-speaking people were invaded by foreigners, by the Babylonians and the Persians, and languages sort of got mixed and conglomerated together, and the result of that was the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. Very, very closely associated with Hebrew, very close to Hebrew, but not Hebrew. So Jesus was an Aramaic speaker. And so Mark is the only one that gives us these Aramaic words. Six times, six times in Mark's Gospel, he will give us this Aramaic word, and then he translates it, which tells us that Mark is writing to non-Aramaic speakers who wouldn't know what Talitha kum means. So Mark had to tell them what it means. They were Latin speakers or Greek speakers. So Mark would then give the interpretation. So this unique thing that Mark does in giving us these actual Aramaic words six times, five of those times are Aramaic words that came from Jesus' lips. Think about that. These are the words that he spoke. Now, sometimes we sort of lightheartedly, we have this little inside joke about red letter edition Bibles. And don't be offended. I, if you've got a red letter edition Bible, I have many red letter edition Bibles, but we sort of have a, a little inside joke about red letter edition Bibles. But if you want an authentic red letter edition Bible with the words of Christ in red, it would have exactly six words in red from five places. Because that's all we have of the precise words Jesus spoke. Jesus, when, when we read Jesus' words, we're, understand we're reading the Greek writing that's now translated to our English of what He spoke. Here we have His actual word. Talitha kum. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know how tall He was. We don't know how short He was. We don't know if his eyes were close set or far set. We don't know if his nose was big or small. We don't know if his forehead was long and sloping or short and stubby. But we have this. He spoke these words, Talitha kum. So what do these words mean? Is this some sort of magic incantation that Jesus speaks over a dead corpse? And so we can just do the same, Talitha kum, and somebody will come back to life? Of course not. Mark translates it for us. Little girl, get up. 
or little girl, I say, arise. So in the Aramaic language, if you were a boy, you would be known as a tally. And the female, the feminine version of that, if you were a girl, you'll be known as a talitha. The word literally means lamb or little lamb. But it had come to be used so frequently and so prolifically to describe a child that the meanings had really become merged into one. And so nobody went around calling little boys, little boy lambs, and then they thought, Oh, they just called me a lamb. It was just a natural thing because that's in the, in the, in this culture, that's just what you called little ones. You called them tali, which meant little boy lamb or talitha, which meant little girl lamb. So he comes and he says to her, talitha, kum. And the word kum just means get up. Little girl, get up. Scholars tell us that this is almost certainly the very words that this girl's mother used every morning of her life. To come and wake her. Little girl, get up. Your rest is over. We have things to do. Little girl, Little lamb, get up. The tender, tender (coughs) preciousness in Jesus' voice. He just calls her little lamb. It's time to get up. It's not time for a rest. It's time to get up. And as he speaks to her, these words that this girl has no doubt heard every morning of her life, these very words that called her out of a restful, deep sleep into another day of consciousness, these same words ring into her ears as Jesus says to her the most ordinary, common words. Little girl, get up. Isn't it just like God to take something so ordinary and do something so supernatural with it. Isn't that what He does with everything? With people, with things, with situations, with everything. Isn't God the one who just takes the most ordinary, mundane things and turns them into something supernatural? Little girl. Come on. Wake up. we got a day ahead of us. And immediately the girl got up. So there's Mark's favorite word again. Immediately. So here's the picture. Everyone who is a parent in the room knows exactly what this picture is like. It's the picture of looking at your child's face in a deep sleep. You know that look? That there's just nothing, it's just, there's nothing there. And then you go and you wake them up. And then you see the eyes open. And when the eyes open, there's no light on yet. And then the light comes on and there's consciousness and awareness as they wake up. That's the picture here. Little girl, wake up. She opens her eyes and then the light comes back on. Luke says her spirit returned to her, which is the biblically precise way to understand physical death. Physical death is when the spirit is separated from the body. 
Jesus returns the state of physical life and her spirit returns to her. And immediately the girl got up. Once again, all of Jesus's healings are immediate. All of Jesus's healings are total. She immediately got up. So here's the main point of the passage. The main point is Jesus Christ has the power over death. The greatest enemy that we face, Jesus Christ has full and total power. Is there an enemy greater than death? Isn't there a sense in which whatever you face, you can humor yourself somewhere in the back of your mind that you can do something about just about anything except death. There is nothing to do about that. Because once you're dead, you can't call for help. You can't ask for resources. You can't exert any effort. You can do nothing. You're dead. It is the greatest enemy and Jesus Christ has total, complete power over it. Revelation 1 verse 18, Behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years old. So once again, she's not having to to be woken, to be resurrected, and then she's still suffering from whatever sickness took her life. And she's sort of in this recovery period, just like Peter's mother-in-law from chapter 1, who gets up and starts serving people. She gets up, starts walking around, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The they is the mother, the father, Jairus and the mother, Peter, James, and John. Five people, they were immediately overcome with amazement. Luke literally says they were amazed with great amazement. They were amazed with mega amazement. Verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Why? Because as soon as she goes out to play, everybody's going to know. It's not like they can keep this thing a secret. She's not the baby Moses after all that can be hidden in an ark. She's 12 years old. Everybody's going to know and they're going to know pretty quick. Why the command to silence? Well, I think mainly it's as simple as crowd control. We've already seen just what a problem the crowds are for Jesus. And I think mainly there's really not a whole lot more than just crowd control. Plus with the fact, added add to the fact that if we believe what the Bible says, that no one's mind about Jesus will be changed by mighty works, then we have no problem with his command to secrecy. We have no problem with his commanding them to strictly charge no one or tell no one about this and told them to give her something to eat. So this is the final thing we'll see that Jesus told them to give her something to eat. What's that all about? Well, naturally, this is also saying to us that Jesus cares for the whole person. She's hungry. She's been probably been sick for a while, probably hadn't eaten in a while. Give the girl something to eat. He cares for her spirit and for her soul, but he also cares for her body. And that's true. However, I think there's more to it than that. So I'm going to speculate a little bit. And I want you to tell me if this sounds like it would hold biblical water. One of the things that strikes me is how often resurrections are connected together with eating. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But three times Jesus is said to be eating after his resurrection. So there's Luke 24, the road to, to Emmaus. They get to Emmaus and they go inside the house and then we're told that not only is Jesus sharing table, we're told what He eats. Then later that night, He goes back to the upper room, comes into the upper room, everybody's shocked, and Jesus says, you have any broiled fish here? 
You have anything to eat? They give him some broiled fish. And then later, John 22, the risen Christ on the shore there. The disciples are out fishing and we're told that Jesus says, come and have breakfast. I got breakfast cooking. And we're told they come and that Jesus serves them bread and fish. Three times. You know, that's more than the entirety of the rest of Jesus' life that we're told that He eats. We're told that He shared a table with Simon the Pharisee, and we're told about, of course, the instituting of the Passover. But we're told more about Jesus' eating after His resurrection than before. And here He raises this girl back to life and says, let's eat. Could it be, could it be, that God wants to hearken our thoughts to our resurrection and how our resurrection will be followed by a meal. That marriage feast, that marriage supper in which we will sit down on that day, on that day when He says to us, Tali kum, or Talitha, kum, come on. This is the day. This is the day that I've come for you. You have never left me. I've never, I've never left you. Your spirit has been with me, but I've now come for your body. So wake up, little girl. Wake up, little boy. And on that day, we sit down to that table in which Jesus says, that's the day that He will again drink of the fruit of the vine with us. Could it possibly be that when Jesus says, give her something to eat, He's placing just a hint there that He wants us to be reminded of that day when He says to us, tally, kum. When He says to us, Lazarus, come out. I've prepared a meal. Let us sit down to table.